Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. I have some exciting news for you this week. I have just moved my newsletter from my author website over to Substack. So for any of you who are already subscribed at my website, keep an eye out for updates in your inbox. I'm really excited to join the dynamic community of writers and science communicators on Substack. This platform will offer me the opportunity to write more regularly and collaborate with other experts, enhancing the discourse on the science behind botanical medicines. My goal is to really build a community around a common interest in the healing power of nature. And my hope is that this will be a trusted place that scientists, physicians, pharmacists, herbalists, and basically anybody that's interested in natural remedies can turn to to find the latest science-based information on botanicals and traditional systems of medicine. I'll also be able to use this platform to tease out exciting themes that we're addressing here on the Fabulous Foodie Pharmacology podcast um, as well. So to sign up, just head on over to naturespharmacy.substack.com. All right, let's dig into the show. I don't know about you, but I have had a really busy weekend of getting my vegetable seeds ready for my spring garden. I love spending time in my garden. There's nothing quite like it, this ability to plant something so tiny, and then a few months later to have something large and delicious and nutritious just awaiting harvest. And you don't have to be a botanist to enjoy gardening, but just think for a moment how much more fun your time in the garden would be if you had a few more knowledge tools in your garden kit. This is where our guest for this week comes in. Dr. Scott Zona is our guest for the week. He's an American botanist and he worked as the palm biologist at Fairchild Tropical Botanic Garden from 1993 to 2008. And then as curator for the Florida International University um, conservatory until 2017. He's most noted for his work on palms and has done a lot of botanical research in the Western Pacific, in the Caribbean, Central America, South America, Madagascar, and the continental U.S. He's also published over 175 scientific and popular articles. But most importantly to the show, Dr. Zona is a gifted teacher and really talented writer. And I know this firsthand as he is the professor that first taught me how to identify tropical and subtropical plants in graduate school courses. He's the author of this fantastic new book. It's entitled A Gardener's Guide to Botany, The Biology Behind the Plants You Love, How They Grow, and What They Need. This was just published and it's incredible. It's rich in these beautiful figures and illustrations and photographs and is incredibly helpful in making some pretty complex uh, ideas really simple to grasp and easy to apply in the garden. So it's really great to see you again today, Scott. Um, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks for inviting me and, and thanks for that very kind introduction. <laughs> great. Well, why don't we start with um, a simple question of what, what really motivated you to write this book? Um, well, it all goes back to the year 2020, which was, you know, for many of us, sort of a, a lost year with lockdown and all of that. Um, and I was sitting here at home and unemployed. And a friend of mine said, well, you know, you could still teach through Zoom and, you know, and, and with all the technology now that, you know, it's very, you could still teach and you don't need to be attached to a university or anything you could offer courses and advertise them on social media. So I thought that was a brilliant idea. And I offered a 
a four session course online called uh, the botany of houseplants because you know during lockdown houseplants were huge. They, they were still huge. Are, but they yeah. were huge during lockdown. <laughs> they were all over Instagram. And and it went really well. And and I had I had a lot of people sign up and it, it was went really well. Had a great time doing it. Talked to lots of great people. But it caught the attention of a publisher who said that um they'd like to have a book about that and would I be interested? And I said, sure. And and we wrote the proposal and and she took the proposal to her um higher ups and they said, Well, houseplants is a little too niche. Can you do something on you know, gardener for gardeners in general. And I said, well, yeah, I can do that. So that's how it began. Uh, and so I, uh, early 2021, I started, uh, you know, got the, the proposal all finished and the contract signed and uh, submitted the final manuscript on Valentine's Day, 2022. And that's great. Published in, in December of last year. That's fabulous. Well, I mean, I, I really like the way that you've structured the book. I mean, chapter one begins with this, you know, just being a plant. What is it like to be a plant? How, how did you come up with the structure for this? I mean, I know you've been teaching graduate and undergraduate courses for years. Who's your audience for this book? Um, well, it, it's, it's actually not, you know, I certainly wasn't writing a textbook or writing for other botanists. Um, that was not the audience at all. Mm -hmm. uh, although I've actually heard from some of my botanical colleagues that they're using this as a textbook in some of their intro classes. But um, I know I just I, I wanted to talk to people that are interested in plants, but maybe didn't, you know, have the a botany degree or didn't have the, all the the educational background. So that was that was my my uh, my audience was people that were interested in plants, and of course gardeners are are you know, by definition, interested in plants. So, but I thought, I, you know, and I didn't want to write a book about how to, how to grow plants. This is not a book about how to grow plants. This is a book about how plants grow. And, mm. uh, and, and because I'm, you know, not an expert horticulturalist by any stretch. So um, I just kind of buckle down on what I think I do best. And that's talking about plants and, and explaining the botanical end of things and try to use examples of, you know, familiar garden plants as examples. Cause I figured that would, that would, uh, people could relate to that. That's great. Well, I, I like the, um, the focus on, yeah, the, the plant centric focus and, you know, what does a plant need? In terms of water, I've learned that some plants need a lot of water and some plants not at all. I have killed many a succulent in my office because <laughs> I overlove them. <laughs> what what types of um, what types of examples can you can you give us um, just to give us a little sneak peek into you know how you're teaching people about what plants actually need? Um, well, I, I you know I, I did try to break it down in terms of what they need for light what they need for water and nutrients and uh, what they need for, for uh, air, air circulation, oxygen and carbon dioxide. Um, and, you know, I, I actually, my undergraduate degree is in horticulture. So I've been growing plants myself mm -hmm. for a long time, have some plants behind me there. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so it was, you know, I, I think I, 
I know what the challenges are of growing plants, especially in a house here. Now I'm living in, in a more temperate climate. Uh, you know, I can't just grow things outside like I did when I lived in Miami. So uh, yeah. I know what the challenges are. Uh, and I, I, I've experienced them firsthand. So I, I thought that that gave me the, the background I needed to, to uh, communicate with people about, about plants. That's great. And I think you also get into a little bit on, on plant secondary metabolism and kind of defense compounds. Can you share with us a bit more about that? Like what are plant defense compounds? Well, as you know, um, plants are, are chemical factories. Um, they cannot run from their predators, so they've got to defend themselves. And um, I look at defense in, uh, in kind of three layers, a perimeter defense, and that might be the, the spines or the prickles or the, the tough, waxy outer layer of a leaf. Those are sort of the, the perimeter defenses. But those can be breached, and when they are, then there's the constitutive defenses. These are the defenses that are always present. So these are the, the phytochemicals that are always there in the leaf or in the plant tissue. And then I talked about the inducible defenses, which are those compounds that are turned on when the plant is under attack. Uh, and so the probably the, the, the defenses that people will probably be most familiar with are the, the perimeter defenses, those structural defenses like spines, but also the constitutive defenses like resin or milky sap mm. or uh, uh, essential oils in the leaves, like the leaves of mint or, or any of the other uh, members of the mint family. So those are all, you know, we think of things in the mint family, we think of those as flavorings or, or herbal things that we add to our food. But for the plant, those are defensive compounds. Those are compounds to keep mm. insects from eating their leaves. Uh, so, um, so yeah, it was it was fun to take a dive into the the phytochemistry, and I, I do have a little background. My my postdoc was actually working on on cyanogenic plants, plants that produce cyanide in their tissues. So naturally, I had to work a little of that into the book. That's um, great. I actually just gave a lecture this morning um, for my botanical medicine and health class. It was my poison lecture, which is always fun. Um, and yeah, we talked a lot about cyanogenic glycosides and, you know, how plants use them for defenses. Tell us a little bit more, like what types of plants do we find these compounds in and what do they actually do um, yeah. to mammals? Yeah. Well, you know, cyanide is one of those kind of universal toxins. It's it's pretty toxic to just about every aerobic organism, uh, including plants. So it, of course, immediately begs the question, well, how does a plant manufacture a chemical that is toxic to plants? And as you already said, they, they do it by joining it up with a sugar molecule, mm -hmm. and that's the cyanogenic glycoside. And when it's in that form, when it's joined to the sugar, it's completely harmless. It can be stored in the plant, it can be moved around, completely harmless. But the plant also makes an enzyme called a glucosidase that it stores in other parts of the of the leaf or other parts of the cell and when but when that cell is ruptured or broken or chewed on by a caterpillar or something like that the enzyme and the the cyanogenic glucoside glycoside cyanogenic glycoside come together mm -hmm. uh, the enzyme 
cleaves off the sugar. There's a couple of extra steps in there, but it basically cleaves off the sugar and liberates the cyanide, and the caterpillar is going to get a mouthful of cyanide. Um, so that's the mechanism. Uh, and some plants don't make the enzyme, but that enzyme is very common in the digestive enzymes of most insects and animals. Mm -hmm. So even if the plant doesn't make the glucosidase, uh, the animal probably makes that enzyme and will release the cyanide when, with its own digestive enzymes. Um, so it's, it's um, a common defense in a lot of plants. It's in, it's in some ferns. Uh, bracken fern is a good example. It's in mm -hmm. some conifers. Uh, it's, it's known in taxis, some, some species of the yew, taxis, the mm -hmm. genus taxis. And it's in just all kinds of flowering plants. Uh, monocots, non-monocots, uh, very common in grasses. In I fact, didn't know any gema. It was so common. That's, yeah, that's it's incredible. very common in a lot of our cultivated food plants. Mm -hmm. So things, a lot of the, the cultivated grasses like sorghum are, are full mm -hmm. of cyanide. Um, uh, Manihot esculenta. Um, the yucca or cassava manioc. Yucca yeah. cassava, mm -hmm. yeah. Cassava mm -hmm. is, you know, an tremendously important food crop uh, in much of the tropical world. And, uh, and yet it's full of cyanide. It has to be, of course, properly processed before it can be safely mm -hmm. consumed. Um, so, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of common cultivated plants, a lot of common ornamental plants. Uh, Nandina domestica, is, which is very common here in the southeast, loaded mm -hmm. with cyanide. Um, elderberry, uh, Sambucus, is loaded with cyanide. Mm. Um, passiflora, the passion vines, they, they have lots of cyanide. cyanide. Also, do we, we find cyanide or cyanogenic glycosides also in uh, fruits within the rosace, rosaceae family, excuse me, right? So apple seeds, plum seeds, peach seeds, right. like all of those pits. Yeah. 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 I, I um, actually have firsthand experience uh, getting a little bit of cyanide, cyanide poisoning from from apricot pits that were used to flavor almond cookies, almond flavored oh. cookies, the little amaretti cookies that you buy from yes. Italy around Christmas mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I this was when I was working as a, a postdoc and on cyanogenic plants, and it was around Christmas time. And I don't know about you, but I can't keep cookies around the house without binging on them. And <laughs> Yeah. I binged, but uh, to my to my regret because um, I, I had a little too many cookies and got a, a massive stomach ache and thought, well, this is odd. Um, <laughs> what's in those cookies? And I looked and I said, apricot pits. Hmm. I took it to the lab the next day. And sure enough, they're, they're full of cyanide. Um, wow. Which, That's the great know, thing about being a scientist. You can bring the re whatever cookies remain to the lab and figure out what happened. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, fortunately, we have the ability to detoxify a little bit of cyanide. So, you know, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm here to tell the tale. But, um, uh, you know, if, if, if one were to eat too much, then, yeah, you could, you could overpower your, your, your detoxifying mechanism and, and succumb to cyanide poisoning. So, so yeah, uh, rosacea is common. And in fact, it's in some of the fruits too. Like a lot of the wild cherries, the mm. the prunus, like prunus serotina, uh, some here in the Southeast at least. I, I can't say for other parts of the world, but 
they, there is a little bit of cyanide left even in the mature fruit. The green fruits are very cyanogenic. And then mm -hmm. as the fruit ripens, the cyanogenic glycosides are withdrawn. Um, but they tend not to withdraw every last one of them. So there is cyanide detectable in, in many of yeah. the fruits. Uh, the same and way that's, a, that's an adaptive like advantage, correct? I mean, because they're basically, if the plant's withdrawing the, the cyanide compounds, it's so that they can actually have an animal come and eat the fruit and disperse the yeah. seed. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can certainly understand why when the fruit is young and still the seed is still developing, the plant doesn't want somebody to come and eat the fruit at that mm -hmm. point because the seed's not ready yet. So it protects that that young fruit and then withdraws the toxin uh, when the fruit is is ripe. And of course, it adds the sugars and, and the color and makes it attractive mm -hmm. to dispersers. And in fact, um, I learned, uh, I've been working with cyanogenic plants uh, with Nandina, the other, uh, this was last year, and uh, learned that cedar waxwings which are common birds here in Eastern North America, have the ability to eat the cyanogenic fruits on cherries, hmm. but they do not digest and do not release the cyanide. They're able to sequester that cyanogenic glycoside without, without cleaving the sugar molecule off and pooping out the cyanogenic glycoside. Wow. Um, which is kind of amazing. Uh, so, they, amazing. so they're completely able to eat feast on cherries and you know how how cedar waxwings they binge just like i binge on cookies they binge on fruit uh and obviously if they didn't have that ability to detoxify the fruit uh they would suffer the consequences but lucky for them they they can deal with the the cyanogenic compound that's found in cherry fruit that's great I'm thinking right now of a moment this summer, you're going to laugh at this because this is so unlike me because I'm always like super prepared. We went on an expedition trip up into the mountains when I was in Albania with the crew and we just forgot to put the food in the car, basically. <laughs> so we're off in the mountains and we are starving and there's no, there's no restaurants. There's no nothing. The villages are half abandoned. We're going all the way to this very remote place where just a few elderly people live and, you know, it's just been such a long day and we're, we're so hungry. And so we see a bunch of plum trees, you know, Prunus domestica that are being grown and full of green fruits, which you can eat. They're kind of very sour, um, but something just to get your, in your stomach. And I definitely had way too many because I was so hungry. And now I'm wondering, like, was I actually getting a little bit of cyanide with that Prunus? I don't know. And the green fruit, maybe it, it's a, yeah, I, don't, I, I, I wasn't anywhere near the lab to bring it back, but <laughs> I definitely had a stomach ache at the end of the day. So. <laughs> yeah, well, green plums, that'll do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> funny, funny. Well, um, because you're such an expert on, on houseplants as well, Scott, I, I wanted to kind of shift focus a little bit to those. Um, and I'll kind of frame it this way. Today in class, we were talking about, again, about poisons and we talked about the dangers of some houseplants um, and specifically with reference to um, kind of oxalate bearing plants. And what can you share with us about that? Like, are there certain houseplants um, that we should look out for, especially if we have pets or young children in the household? Like, what are some of the things we should look out for? Yeah, there, there are certain plant families, as you'll remember from Tropical Plant mm -hmm. Taxonomy, that are famous for having uh, calcium oxalate in their tissues 
and it's in the form of bundles of needle-shaped crystals mm -hmm. that are kind of encapsulated in a, uh, a gelatinous like capsule, but it, they're very easy to see under the microscope. You, you've seen them, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, some of the families that are famous for that are A, palms, and B, the aeroid family. Both of those families are well known for having uh, these crystals of calcium oxalate. They're called raffides. And raffides are, um, are, again, they're a defensive compound. They're a constitutive defense. They're always present, always ready to, to defend the plant against something that wants to eat it. Uh, so uh, do they pose a risk just handling the plant? No, not at all. It's, mm -hmm. it, would, it would have to become with uh, consuming the plant. Um, and I would imagine one would have to consume quite a bit to really suffer the consequences. There are some plants that are famous for having a really high concentration. Uh, the, the aeroid genus Diffenbachia. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, is a, a common house plant. Uh, it's kind Known of not as, not as common as it right? used to be. It, it yeah, used yeah. to be more, more fashionable. It's sort of fallen out of favor. But um, it's, you know, its tissues are loaded with this stuff. And and the mode of toxicity with these raffides is, for a while, it was thought to be just the physical nature of these needle-like crystals that would you know, lodge in tender epithelial tissues there in your mouth or throat. Um, but it's more than that. There's a toxin involved as well. So the crystals, these raffides crystals will uh, puncture the cells, the, the epithelial cells, and that allows then the toxin to enter the cell. And uh, the exact nature of the toxin, I don't think is really well understood. And and, and it may also be that some people, uh, it may be more of like an allergen than it is a toxin. So some, and some people are gonna be more allergic than others. Uh, I remember uh, collecting the fruit from a palm in, um, this was in Indonesian New Guinea, the Western half of the island of New Guinea. And this is a palm that is well known for having the calcium oxalate crystals in its fruit. And people always warn, you know, do not handle the fruit, wear, wear gloves, be careful. Um, and I, I've handled the fruit before, never had a problem with the, you know, with the, these are juicy berry-like fruits and, and, you know, you get the juice on you whenever you touch it. Um, mm -hmm. But I've never had a problem. So I thought, well, maybe it's time to do a little experiment. So I took some fruit, rolled up the sleeve and got the nice tender underside of my, uh, wrist there and rubbed some fruit right on there and had absolutely no reaction. I monitored it for, you know, 24 hours, no reaction at all. So I, I huh. think there's, there's a, there, there is probably a, a you know, a allergic component there and I'm just not allergic to it. <laughs> That's my That's... very unscientific hypothesis. So I like it. Your, your clinical trial of N of one. That's good. Yeah. N of one. yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, well, speaking of palms, I would be remiss if I didn't pick your brain a little bit on palms because you are an expert um, on this family. What can you tell us about the relevance of palms to our food systems? I mean, this is a show all about food and health, and I know there are many edible palms, but maybe some of our listeners aren't familiar with those. 
Yeah, well, there, you know, the 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 edible palm that everyone is probably aware of is is African oil palm, which is mm -hmm. um, a hugely important crop plant in the tropics. Uh, it's incredibly productive. It's more productive in terms of, you know, uh, tons of oil per hectare than any other oil crop. Uh, so it's understandable why people grow it because it's just incredibly productive. And it's also, it's a perennial, it's a palm, it's a perennial. It doesn't, it's not like soybeans that have to be planted every year. Mm -hmm. uh, however, um, the demand for palm oil is huge. And unfortunately, a lot of, um, you know, clear, good, nice, healthy forest is being cut down for these monocultures of oil palm. And that that's where the problem lies. Um, you know, palm oil itself is 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 not to blame. I mean, there's it's, palm oil is not bad. Palms are not bad. It's simply uh, the, you know, converting healthy, biodiverse tropical forests into mm. these monocultures of oil palm. That's where the problem lies. Uh, so yeah. um, there are there are some programs for sustainable palm oil, uh, the um, palm oil that's produced on land that has already been degraded for from from other crops, other uses. Uh, so, you know, there are there are, are alternatives to. You know, chopping down uh, intact forest. Uh, and so I, I think, you know, we need to encourage those alternatives. Um, you know, nobody banning palm oil is is not going to make it go away. Um, it's it's probably in you know lots of things in our in our house. It's used not only as a food, but it's also used as sort of the chemical feedstuff for lots of other chemistry that goes mm -hmm. on. Uh, so things like soaps and detergents and cosmetics and all sorts of things that are made from products that were originally palm oil, but have been converted through chemistry into other things. So uh, it's 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 in so much and it would be impossible to, to just make it go away. But we certainly need to do a better job at um, growing it more sustainably. Yeah, this um, this this question of monoculture, I think, is really important because, you know, as you said, there's so many problems with with large-scale industrial monoculture from you know erosion of biodiversity to really susceptibility to disease i hadn't been home in florida um, for a couple of years because of you know combination of the pandemic and then the last hurricane it was really hard you know to, to get into town because of some of the damage to the to my hometown um, but i was back just uh i guess a week or so ago and it was tragic what i saw i mean here we had a huge monoculture, in this case of citrus trees, um, and citrus, as you know, are from Asia. And um, because of citrus greening, that's been a problem that's just kind of built and built and built until the groves have collapsed. They're being abandoned and divided up, you know, for commercial and uh, residential development. And it's it's incredibly sad because, you know, this is a big part of Florida's economy, but also, these, you know, they've already displaced a lot of the, the natural habitats of oak hammocks and pine pine forests that, you know, were the heart of Central Florida. Um, I don't know if you want to comment on that or other other crops that face similar challenges right now. 
Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I feel your pain because I've, as I've been there too, and I've seen um, that's the Central Florida, which um, was converted into citrus culture pretty early on uh, in the mm -hmm. development of Florida back in the early 20th century. And, you know, citrus was this incredible driver of the economy for Florida for so long. And yeah, the last time I did the trip down the center of the state, particularly the area north of Orlando, between Gainesville mm. and Orlando, uh, yeah, I was just, I was shocked at the absence of citrus and either groves that have been just abandoned, people have just walked away from them, uh, and you can see all the weeds and, you know, yeah. the secondary growth coming up, or uh, groves being converted into pine plantations and things like that, you know, other other sources of income for, for the people that live there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's sad because it's also sad that the, the habitat that it was, that, that citrus displaced exactly. is not it's coming gone. back into those, into those yeah. areas. And I'm thinking specifically the sandpine scrub, which is an oak dominated mm -hmm. scrub uh, habitat mm -hmm. in, in the, the deep sand, uh, areas of central Florida on the ridge there, and uh, that's not coming back, and that's a critically endangered habitat. Yeah, it mm -hmm. is, and it's it's incredibly beautiful habitat, you know, that hosts a, a variety of plants and animals, and yeah, so it's just, it's interesting to see how agricultural trends influence, you know, not just economies, but also ecosystems and livelihoods, and it's all intertwined. Yeah. Well, yeah, Tr trying to imagine Florida without citrus, it's just, it's just like, you know, having it, grown up there, how, I, I just can't, how do you do it? Yeah, I it's can't like, imagine Florida without, you know, mm -hmm. orange juice served at the, at the, the welcome stations there on the, on the interstate, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's about to be, I think, a thing of the past because yeah. it's just, yeah. Well, let's 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 move to a more positive note because I don't want to leave our listeners on a <laughs> such a sad sad topic. And why don't we think about positive change? So, in your book, you talk a lot about you know what plants need to really thrive. And as we're approaching the spring season, I know that folks are starting to get their their seedlings ready, or they may be starting things indoors now. Um, do you have any advice in how? For example, in a suburban or urban environment, how people might be able to help foster biodiversity in their own neighborhoods, like, or how do we contribute to diversity in our communities? Yeah, well, you know, there are so many great programs out there, most often run by local extension services for mm -hmm. uh, uh, helping people uh, produce gardens that are beneficial to wildlife, to birds, to pollinators, to all the, um, all the wildlife at, at every scale. Um, and, and I think people could certainly get and take advantage of those programs. Uh, they vary from state to state, uh, but uh, here in the United States, uh, the local extension service, each county has its own extension service, and that would be a great place to start. Uh, mm -hmm. to ask if you're interested in in uh, making your garden and your immediate surroundings a little more biodiverse, a little more eco-friendly. Um, the other advice I can give is just stop using pesticides. Um, mm -hmm. 
I was just in Home Depot this morning. Um, and I'll go there again because every project requires two trips to Home Depot, apparently. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I, I, you know, I walk through the, the garden section and it's just sad to see pallets and, and you know, stacks of some pretty serious poisons there. And, you know, homeowners, these are all for homeowners. These are not for professional application. These are for homeowners to use. And, um, you know, it, it, if you really want birds to thrive in your garden and, and other wildlife, um, the best way to do it is just stop using the poisons, the, you know, uh, the pesticides, the, especially things like the the neonicotinoids, things that that mm-hmm. that stay in the environment and can can persist and 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 can poison non-target organisms. You know, it, yeah, they'll mm-hmm. kill your pest, but they'll also kill everything else. You know, um, yeah. So that 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 would be my advice. Talk, talk to your talk to your extension people about programs for building biodiversity that are appropriate for whatever area uh, you're in, and then kick the pesticide habit. Um, uh, You know, everybody wants a a beautiful, pristine picture postcard garden. My garden certainly is not that. Um, (laughs) I think if we learn to tolerate a little bit of herbivory, you know, a few weeds, it's it's not the end of the world. you know, if your roses have a little bit of black spot on them, you know, we, we, we just learn to live with it. It just means yeah. that that you've got an, an ecosystem that's a little healthier than than those where everything is just it's just so perfectly curated. I you know um, I've never understood why people spray like Roundup on their lawns or like try and kill the dandelions. I love to eat dandelion. Like, why would you kill it? It's a great, it's a great soup ingredient. And it's, <laughs> you know, and it's a great early nectar source for for bumblebees and other early emerging pollinators. So um, yeah, yeah, I I like them. I I love I I like dandelions. I don't bother trying to get them out because. Well, first of all, you know how tough they are to pull out, and yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so I just, you know, I just don't have time to even try to even deal with the dandelions. So. Well, I have one last question for you, Scott. Um, as we kind of get close to the end of the show, um, and this is one I ask of all of our guests: is you know, do you have a favorite recipe um, that you'd like to share with us, or some way that you like to take a vegetable from your garden? Like, what what's one of your favorite recipes that you can share? Oh, Cassandra, you hit me with this question out of the blue <laughs> like this. You should have warned me. I'm um, sorry. Yeah. It can be oh simple. Gosh. It can be sliced. It can be sliced fresh tomatoes. I mean, anything. Yeah. yeah. In the well, let me yeah. tell you, it, what will soon be my favorite recipe, uh, and it will be fresh asparagus that I pick from my garden. Oh, uh, nice. Part of the reason that I left Miami and ended up here in North Carolina um, is that I had read. Barbara Kingsolver's book, Animal Vegetable Miracle. Mm-hmm. And she just waxed, you know, poetic and rhapsodic about fresh asparagus. And of course, living in Miami at the time, you know, all our asparagus came from Peru or Mexico or, you know, yeah. thousands of miles away. And um, my partner and I looked at the map and said, well, where, how far do we have to move where we can grow asparagus? And, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, Unfortunately, I had to be out of Florida, but um, 
so yeah, and I so one of the first things um, when we got into that, and I've been here now about almost three years. So I planted my asparagus bed, and of course, all the books said you can't harvest the asparagus until uh, until about the third year, and there and then thereafter. So this spring. They're all, oh. they're still, they're still dormant right now, but this spring in the next couple of months, I expect to see some asparagus shoots. And then my favorite recipe will probably be just uh, fresh asparagus stuck under the broiler for a few minutes until they turn mm. nice and, uh, you know, golden around the edges uh, with butter and maybe a little garlic and maybe a squeeze of lemon. That'll be my, my favorite wow. recipe. That sounds amazing, <laughs> especially yeah. with it being so fresh and from your garden. That's exciting. So it's like your three-year asparagus anniversary. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm excited. I, I'm, I'm you know, hoping that that I'm going to get a piece of crop. Show. I tell you, fighting the deers around here has been uh -huh. traumatic. I, I plant something and, you know, two weeks later I look at it and it's just gone. It breaks oh, no. my heart sometimes. but. <laughs> It's but I, I have I have hope. My my other thing that's coming that I think will be flowering, and I'll probably get some fruit on this year or this spring, this summer, will be pawpaws. I I I yes. planted some grafted varieties, some cultivars, mm -hmm. named cultivars of pawpaws. And so fingers crossed, I'm gonna get some pawpaws this summer. That's amazing. I have two pawpaws in my yard as well. And so I had one little fruit last year. Is it it got, I think it got you know fruit napped by some kind of <laughs> maybe a deer or maybe maybe a squirrel or something took yeah it away. between you know <laughs> the possums and the raccoons and the squirrels yeah 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 and yeah but i'm hopeful the, for this year <laughs> the the squirrels we had a nice crop of green apples and then one day literally in one day uh about four or five gray squirrels went out there and just stripped the entire tree of all the green wow. apples and I think they take like one bite and decide they don't like it and throw it down and then go to the next one, you know, so <laughs> just, just ruin the crop. So, you know, as much as I love the idea of, of, you know, being off the food grid, growing my own food. Um, it's really hard. I know how hard it is. <laughs> yeah, and I, yeah. I respect to all those people that can, that can produce their own food and, and produce food for the rest of us because um, it's yeah. hard. It's hard work. It is. It is. Well, at least we can start with small steps with our home gardens, with our um, house plants, and, and our uh, yeah, and your asparagus. And just a reminder, foodies, make sure you get this book, A Gardener's Guide to Botany: um, The Biology Behind the Plants You Love, How They Grow, and What They Need. Cassandra, can I add one more yeah. thing? Sure. Um, you know, I wrote this book for gardeners, and and like I say, mm -hmm. use mostly garden examples. What I really hope will happen is will people will start to see beyond their garden and they'll start to look at, you know, when they're driving down the road and like around here, it's, there's, you know, a lot of forest. And you think for some people, they just see that as green wallpaper, you know? Yeah. And I'm hoping it'll open people's eyes to not only what's going on in their garden, but beyond the borders of the garden in nature in and in parks and other areas around them, not just not just their backyard garden, but but everywhere that these plants are important. 
Oh, that's amazing. Yes, we want more people to be able to notice nature and start driving like a botanist does. Which, you know, you know, a botanist drive. We drive yeah. and we see something off the side of the road, we pull over. <laughs> eyes on the road, Cassandra. <laughs> I know, eyes on the road. This is a good thing, like when my husband drives, so I can just like keep <laughs> Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Scott, for coming on the show. This has been a lot of fun. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Um, that's our show for today. If you've enjoyed this episode and others, please head over to Apple Podcasts and hit those five stars in the rating section. We're always looking for financial support to keep the show going. And it can be as simple as just buying me a cup of coffee. Head on over to buymeacoffee.com slash foodie pharma and purchase a cup of Joe to support the show. If you're interested in merchandise, we also have a really fun assortment of foodie pharmacology mugs, shopping bags, notebooks, t-shirts, and more. Head over to mysterycontrol.com and search up foodie pharmacology. I want to thank our producers to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth from Co-Conspiracy Entertainment. And thanks to you, my dear listeners, for tuning in every week. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.